welcome to this preemptive listening podcast, Speaking Sirens. I'm Irene Revel and I'm here with Aura Satz and we're your hosts to guide you through these sounds and voices we've selected for you. We've just been listening to Delia Beatrice, who records under the name Debit. For those of you who've visited Kunzner's Hoos, this is the last of the siren compositions in the Siren Cemetery in the mesmerising helicoidal loop of Aura's three-screen installation. Delia told us, I wrote my alarm piece using the Schumann resonance as the main audio source to compose with the concept of the Earth's global electromagnetic resonance as an emission of a warning of what is happening to the core of the world, literally and figuratively, sending out a general planetary alarm to the universe, to any sentient life about our dire earthly condition. In addition to the Schumann's resonance, the piece brings in samples of my own instruments that Delia made during her residency with the Zapatistas, mixing deep pre-Hispanic time and deep future. I've been working as a researcher with Aura for the past year on her preemptive listening project that the installation is a part of, building towards a feature film next year. So in the next half an hour or so, we're going to delve into this wider project. We'll start with a brief discussion of this notion of preemptive listening and its relationship to the idea of alternative sirens, new siren sounds, and the concrete examples that the project is gathering, like the one you've just heard. Then we're going to share a series of voices, clips from interviews that Aura has conducted over the years of her research on this project, that have contributed to all of this thinking. We'll hear from cultural historian Hillel Schwartz on the history of listening. Percussionist Evelyn Glennie will take this history into wider sensory realms, particularly talking about alarms and oral diversity. Writer and improviser David Toop talks about the sound of breakage and his affinity for working with bamboo. Activist and scholar Daphne Carr will discuss the relationship between sirens, governance and care. And you'll hear more new siren sounds from Evelyn Glennie and Laurie Spiegel, whose composition with the sounds of nearly extinct manatees will lead us into a closing thought on Silence and Hope by Hillel Schwartz. So let's get to this question of preemptive listening and the relationship to new siren sounds. I first started working on this in around 2016 and 2017 in earnest. And for the first siren compositions, I reached out to people I thought I would have an affinity with or that I'd worked with in the past. And I was really looking for people that could be imaginative in their response to this score or this invitation. Throughout the process, what I've found is that I really couldn't have done this project on my own. I need to be engaged in a kind of collective, imaginative exercise with other people, other composers, other thinkers, um, many, many interviews with researchers and historians and cognitive psychologists and policy advisors. Um, the shape of the project and of the film in the making has really been dictated in part by the responses I've received. 
So earlier you mentioned Laurie Spiegel, and that was a key moment that brought in the sound of extinction and the notion of animal sounds or the non-human. Animal howls or a kind of grief. And it opened a door to thinking around a whole range of soundscapes, but also things that might not have an equivalent in sound. So that's been one of the major trajectories of the project. So not just exploding the idea of the siren and moving away from our more familiar readings and sonic worlds of um, siren sounds and emergency signals, but trying to imagine it differently, both sonically in the first instance, but also as a kind of imaginative exercise that moves us perhaps towards an impossible sound. And what about the title itself? So preemptive listening became a really useful title because it suggested this notion of listening forward or listening ahead or listening with warning in mind. And it was much more useful than putting the word siren into the title, which would already kind of um, point towards these more historical readings of the siren and nail it down in a familiar sonic territory. Something else that I'd like to point out in terms of the title is that listening is not just something we do without ears, but it's really a way of paying attention. Hearing or listening can take place in other ways that are well beyond the ears, that are much more about sensing or feeling, touch or you know, um, skin. And in some sense, when you think about exploding the idea of the siren or diffracting this idea of how we listen, then the possibilities are endless. Hillel Schwartz is the author of Making Noise, From Babel to the Big Bang and Beyond, and he's currently writing a cultural history of emergency. Here, he's picking up on important changes in how we listen that have occurred over the last couple of centuries. There's a big shift in how people listen as recording technologies are developed. Before the recording technologies developed, there's an earlier shift in listening, which has to do with what it is to be an audience. If you live in a society that is accustomed to attending to sound differently, first, you're listening to keep hold of rather than for immediate response. You're listening to keep hold of. If you're listening to a two-hour-long sermon, you're not going to respond to the next sentence. You're going to respond after two hours or which is a very interesting idea, which we have almost lost. Second is that you're in a society where listening is a matter of course. One begins to listen as much for the breaths and the pauses that indicate when it's appropriate to respond rather than interrupting. It will change when First, people start speaking faster, and we know that over the course of the 19th and into the 20th century, people began speaking their sentences faster. We also know that when people begin to use more of the sound placeholders in their language, when people begin to say um and uh, we suspect that people then began to have dialogues that were more interruptive. Then recorded conversations come to be. You have not just the telephone, but you have the phonograph. But it also means that now people will have it in their hands to hear something again. 
it was unusual, except if you were very wealthy, uh, to hear something again before recorded sound. One went with the full intention of holding on, keeping hold of the sounds produced by the performer. Eventually, this affected how people were listening to each other, not as performers, but in conversation. And the liveliness of the interaction is, in fact, evidenced by the number of times we can interrupt and feedback with each other. All of this eventually, though, will have an effect, this change in listening will have an effect in how one thinks through the problem of creating sonic alerts. The siren really signals an interruption, so it has to somehow be heard above the din of the urban soundscape, and it has to jolt listeners into action. I've been reading a book by Elaine Scarry called Thinking in an Emergency, where she writes, Language disappears, words are replaced by loud noises, crude sirens, harsh horns, one-syllable sounds that act as placeholders for language until it can return. And in fact, one of the advisors to the project, cognitive psychologist Judy Edworthy, was talking about how in fire alarms, for example, there are pauses designed into the sound, gaps that are left for people to be able to communicate in between the emergency signaling. honored when Evelyn Glennie agreed to contribute to this project. She's an amazing deaf percussionist who plays barefoot, feeling through her body, um, and really kind of engaging with a haptic vibratory method through skin and touch. What was really interesting to me was that her compositions were devised to be heard and sonified through a mobile phone. So yes, a hearing person might experience them as percussive sequences, but a deaf person might experience them as a vibratory pattern that um, is played through their mobile phones. When I interviewed Evelyn in relation to her composition, she talked about listening as a kind of sensory cobweb, and I really love this idea of listening extending beyond the ears across all parts of the body and vision, and even smell or a kind of um, sensory accounting for the space that one is in. You know, we have, um, in, in uh, you know, ages gone by, been incredibly sensitive to vibration without it being loud or piercing um, or where all the senses have to be ignited. And, uh, and I think that our our... I suppose our linking of our senses are so crucial in our listening process. And that's why I think that for us to think about alarms as softer sounds, that actually, are we paying attention to something that might be fed through our legs or our feet or our chests or our neck 
or our scalp and so on. And what does that trigger? Ah, something through the scalp. That could be a certain type of alarm. Um, just as, um, for example, when you try vibrating clock alarms, you know, for deaf people, they'll often put it under their pillows. And it's just something through the cheekbones that that you feel, you know, rather than that being on the the bedside table, uh, which is a very different kind of feel. And when it's more connected, where there is that space um, or object for the vibration to be fed through so that it's not so jarring um, is is really helpful so that alarm actually becomes helpful and friendly at the same time, rather than shocking and dangerous and, and you have to make quick decisions. So it's almost trying to see if alarms can be uh, something that we, we can control ourselves, where we can uh, make good decisions when we experience that alarm uh, by where it's being fed through, through the body. When uh, new schools for the deaf are being built, and there's a fabulous example in, in King's Cross whereby um, you know, instead of, as we have in so many buildings, you have a, a 90 degree angle of a corner or something, you know, when you, you go down the corner and then you, you turn right or you turn left and, and someone else might be coming at the opposite, from the opposite direction. And well, for deaf people, that's very alarming because suddenly somebody appears and you haven't necessarily heard the footsteps or whatever. And so they design all of this with curved corners. And it just makes so much of a difference because then they have time to see round that corner and bec it becomes less alarming really and, 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 and jarring. And it's an interesting thing that actually, because I feel that that could be the same with sound. I get it a lot with percussion because people assume percussion is just loud because of the physical nature of playing percussion in that you come up and you come down. It's quite angular. Um, even if you're playing soft, there, there's still, you know, this this element to it. And I'm always keen to try and get uh, more of a, 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 a sort of horizontal line going through a phrase. I approached the musician and polymath David Toop because of his work with small sounds in the 70s when he set up a semi-fictional organization called the Institute of Signals and Noises. It seemed really interesting to me to work with this idea of almost insignificant sounds as potential sirens. If you think about a parent listening to the breathing patterns of their child, you know, that, that can be a signal that communicates something just like a loud siren can be. He's contributed to the project over different chapters since 2018 and um, more recently for a different facet of the project using the small sounds of gas explosions and smoke and fire. When I approach collaborators or musicians, I come with a score of sorts. Um, and the idea is really to let go of the siren as we know it and to try and think about it afresh. So my working definition of the siren is that first and foremost, it's a call to attention then it's a call to action, or it carries within it an instruction, and lastly it points to the possibility of future, or it has within it some kind of indication towards the exit route or survival. 
When I approached David Toop, I was really keen to explore this notion of small sounds, almost imperceptible sounds. And he came up with a really wonderful spoken word piece that explores the sounds of breakage. Sirens are designed to shock the physical impact is shocking and yet in some way we're disconnected from sirens maybe for self-preservation we like to think that an emergency signal is is somebody else's catastrophe something that will never happen to us But the sound of a breakage, a sudden breakage, is is really uh, very hard to ignore. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that we value material objects too much. So there's a projection that whatever is broken, plates in a restaurant, Something similar is um, more directly impinging on our sense of physical integrity. Maybe it makes us think of broken arms, broken legs, broken buildings, broken societies. I've always worked with bamboo and I have legs of bamboo around in the rooms where I live and work and sometimes it splits very unexpected moments and it's a deeply disturbing sound it's like a muscle splitting open or a finger snapping Yet there's something incredibly beautiful about it. It's just a spontaneous action. Something held in tension for a long, long time has suddenly broken apart. It's a reminder of the physicality of the materials we use and their fragility too. It can act as a metaphor, if you like, of uh, all of the things that are broken in our lives. It's alarming. So from David Toop's small sounds that are almost imperceptible, we move to loud sounds and sirens in spaces of public protest that have in recent years been used by authorities as a tool of deterrence and herding. We hear now from Daphne Carr, an activist and scholar who writes about sonic violence and policing and has produced a zine for protesters to learn how to protect themselves from the use of the LRAD, or long-range acoustic device, a kind of sound cannon. Here she addresses the problem of who sounds the alarm and when. Often sirens are activated when it's too late, and there are a whole range of infrastructural preventative measures that could have taken place well beforehand. Also echoing David Toop's concerns that property and the breakage of stuff is often prioritised over people. 
there are sirens that exist all around the world, but the the big ones that we're talking about, you know, civil defense, uh, nuclear sirens, you know, uh, factory whistles, whatever these um, sounding devices are, they're the voice of some kind of power, usually governance, and they're going to have a threshold of when they decide enough is enough, and then they're going to ring the alarm. Often, in retrospect, unfortunately, you know, one of the cynical favorite tools of a journalist is how could we have prevented this happening? And you go and you interview all the survivors of the factory and they all say, yeah, no one's been maintaining that equipment for years. Yeah, they fired the guy who knew how to fix it. Yeah, you know, like it's obvious to every single person who was in that that this was going to happen eventually. You know, when you look at Hurricane Katrina, yeah, you don't rebuild the levee. You don't, the Army Corps of Engineers doesn't do this. Yeah, this is not a, like, this is not an accident of nature. This is an accident of failed governance and failed care. I mean, basically, we're just talking about infrastructure, right? Like, let's not have a bridge collapse. Let's not have our shoreline so vulnerable to water that, you know, a category three storm on a, on a, full moon is going to like destroy the city and it doesn't have to be that way there are all these spaces of care that could prevent us ever having to hear a siren and if we if our society worked the way it was supposed to the only time we would hear a siren is when something tr truly an act of nature that we truly couldn't stop would trigger it sirens for good are incredibly powerful to think about because what it would mean is enough consensus enough buy-in by enough people that a thousand people decided now was the moment that we need to blow the horn i think about these international environmental um meetings as as sirens right because all of these people are coming together, scientists, world leaders, everyday people, activists, indigenous leaders, and saying, hey, like, we don't have that much more time. You really have to do this. And we have to actually sit down and do the very tedious and bureaucratic decisions about which factories are gonna close. Like, yeah, maybe you're gonna have to turn off your gas stove, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that we're gonna need to do in consensus as a population, because we are all in agreement that the alarm has to be sounded. And it's, I think it's acknowledging that and building the skill sets so that we can collaborate is, is, how, we, uh, is how we respond to the alarm in ways that don't just deal with the immediate threat in front of us, but build a society where we don't need alarms in the future. And I know that that sounds really utopian, but I think it takes really strong view of hope and of, of humankind for us to get ourselves out of this mess. But, uh, you know, I feel like if there is going to be a consensus around a vision it's going to come from 
pathways that are, are not the ones that we consider to be the ones that have their finger on the button of the siren right now. up on ecological emergency, you've been listening to Laurie Spiegel's siren composition that focuses on the sounds of manatees, the almost extinct large aquatic mammals that until recently were native to US southern states like Florida, amongst a few other animal sounds. While she was working on the piece, she told us, I'm still thinking of doing something with the sounds of the manatees, sirenians in biological terminology but there seemed to be almost no recordings anywhere to provide sonic material to work with. I found only one short vocal sound online. These are animals endangered by us humans to the point of near emergency. And although it's a completely different reading of the word siren, you know I'm moved by their plight. And she goes on, Do I want to make music that gives us a bit of a reprieve from the world to recover and regroup, the better to be able to confront what's going on? Or do I want to make music that expresses the infinite tragedy and violence, the destructiveness? Is it possible for a piece of music to do both? And here is Hillel Schwartz again, picking up on this silencing that Laurie Spiegel works with in a hopeful closing thought. In one sense, the very nature of an emergency may be sonic or it may have to do with the absence of sound. For example... The clarion call to environmental action was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and she does not begin her first pages with the sounds of industrialization and the sounds of toxic chemicals pouring into the water. She begins by describing the missing sounds of birds no longer singing in this very small verdant area. One could argue that the dangers are all about eventual silencing, the silencing of our voices as activists or as uh, people concerned about justice and equity, the silencing of species, 
Uh, but we also have maps now of endangered languages. So if we can make this connection sonically between silence and death, which is already part of all cultures to some respect, I think that would be important. And I have a friend who's a clinical social worker, psychiatric social worker, who says that much of the time now the people who come in for her help turn out to be feeling a great sense of grief. But if you acknowledge that grief, and I think the sonic world allows for a great deal of rich experimentation with that, then you may be able to move forward differently. <laughs>